Genesis in chapter 29. This is one of the, as I told the high school class this morning, this is one of the truly bizarre chapters in the Bible. And uh, there's some unique and interesting things in it. Um, it's a little long, so we're going to read it as we go through. And I'm really going to focus in more towards the end of the chapter. And I know your bulletin says through verse 30, but we're going to go through verse 35. Um, and then we're going to overlap uh, with that last, uh, next week. But uh, as we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as always, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your people, for this church. Lord, this morning we ask for ears to hear and minds to understand as we study these things. Show us how we're weak and how you are strong. Show us how our idols don't satisfy and how only you do. For this, we need your grace. We need your spirit. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, every week I send out a, a weekly thought it goes out in the weekly email, and uh, this week I, I told you that when we read about in-laws in the Bible, uh, we find some that are good and some that are not so good. And uh, you know that Moses and his father-in-law Jethro are an example of the good in-law relationship. And then there's Jacob. And Jacob and his father-in-law Laban, um, you might say, is an example of a not-so-good uh, in-law relationship. I mean, I know a number of you may think that your in-laws are difficult, but imagine having one who would switch daughters at the wedding ceremony. And that's our text for today. And it seems pretty straightforward. There's a ton of stuff. This could have easily been three or four sermons. Um, you're going to get it all today. Um, and we're going to see there's lots of gospel hidden in this passage. So I'm going to read Genesis 29 as we go through it. And one of the things that we're immediately struck with in this passage is the Bible It can be the most unsentimental of books, particularly when it comes to the subject of marriage and family. It's utter, utterly realistic about marriage and family, that it's always hard and sometimes devastating to not be married. And it's always hard and sometimes devastating to be married. And keeping this biblical understanding is very difficult because there's virtually no support for it institutionally or structurally in our society. Outside of Christian circles, uh, in the secular world at large, there's a tremendous amount of fear and cynicism about marriage, and with good reason. Uh, because of the things I said that the Bible talks about. On the other hand, inside Christian circles, there's a tendency for many Christians to say, marriage, that's what life's all about. Marriage, family, 2.3 kids, a dog, and a white picket fence. And the Bible says both of those attitudes are utterly wrong. Because the Bible doesn't show us uh, Jesus pointing to marriage and saying, that's what you need. The Bible shows us marriage both in its strengths and its tremendous difficulties, and both pointing to Jesus saying, that's what you need. 
So let's get started. Let's turn to verse 1 of Genesis uh, 29. And we're going to look at Jacob's hopes. We're going to do this part fairly quickly. There's a couple things you need to know as background to this story. Uh, we've been out of Genesis for a while, so we need to get a little caught up. Um, Jacob comes from a family that's uh, chosen by grace, but it's a family filled with suffering. If you remember, Abraham had one son, Isaac, and when Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was pregnant, she had uh, twin sons, and God sent a prophecy to them and said, the elder will serve the younger. And uh, Isaac essentially ignores what God says, and he puts his heart on Esau and clearly favors Esau, loves him more than Jacob. And as a result of this, devastation is just wreaked on both boys as they grow up. Their characters are ravaged by this. Esau grows up to be willful and proud and no self-control because Isaac makes him the favorite. And Jacob turns into a liar. Jacob turns into a deceiver. Jacob turns into a manipulator. And you know the story. And what happens when they come of, of age is that one day Jacob deceives his father. His father's old and blind. And Jacob dresses up as Esau, and he gets Isaac to give uh, Jacob the blessing. And Jacob gets the, the birthright, and Jacob becomes, in a sense, the head of the clan. And when Esau figures out uh, what Jacob has done and how he's been deceitful, uh, like many brothers, he says, I'm going to kill you. And so Jacob has to run. And so he flees far away. Uh, to the other side of the Fertile Crescent, essentially uh, to where his uncle Laban takes him in. Now, if you're Jacob, your life's over. Jacob isn't sure if God screwed up, if he's the one who screwed up, if his father or his family screwed up, but he's, he can't be thinking he's going to be able to fulfill his destiny now. He's got no faith. It's all ruined. He's got no money. He's got no place. He's not in his homeland. It's all over. That's the story. That's the background. Now, God has come and given him a promise but as we'll see, he doesn't really believe it yet. That's still a few chapters uh, down the road before he finally gets it. So he's in a strange place, foreign land. We come to Genesis 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to him, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. Is it not time for the Livestock to be gathered together, water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. So Jacob knows uh, by heart 
the story of how his mother, uh, Rebekah, had been revealed to Abraham's servant, Eliezer, when he arrived in Mesopotamia, and how Rebekah volunteered to water all ten of his camels, just as he had prayed she would if she was the appointed wife for Isaac. And he knew this took place at a well. Wells had uh, been a significant place in his father Isaac's life, so Jacob's expectation surely uh, must have been rising because the first thing he sees is a well. Now, would God be pleased to bring about the answer to the promises that were made to him in Bethel, as we saw last week? What is he to make of this situation? But let's jump down to verse 9. There's a lot here, and we just don't have time to, to deal with all of it. But let's jump down to see Rachel entering the story. The name Rachel means you lamb. And there seems to be a word play on her name as she enters the story in verse 9. Uh, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. So we have the lamb with her lambs. And Jacob's actions seem to indicate he believes that God's hand has guided him and he's overwhelmed with joy. And so you, you see this sudden burst of manliness in Jacob, verse 10. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth. The text made it clear that removing the stone from the well is sort of this communal task that all the shepherds do together because the stone is large. But in this burst of emotion, Jacob sort of strides up and wrenches it away single-handedly. Jacob is the man. So Rachel runs off to tell her father what's going on. I met this guy. He moved the stone all by himself. There's a lot more that's going on here, but the real point of the story, and thus the point of the sermon, comes later. So we're going to move on and see what happens next. And what happens next is Laban plots. Laban plots, starting at verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, you should therefore serve me for nothing. Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant uh, Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. It's one of the great lines of the Bible. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Who knew? And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? 
Laban said, it is not uh, so done in our country. You can sort of see him, you know, to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. He gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So this is a just pleasant story. You see, Laban is the uncle, the father of Leah and Rachel. And Laban brings Jacob in as sort of this charity case, and he's got him working for him as a shepherd, and he suddenly realizes something. He's sort of looking at Jacob and saying, this guy's a great shepherd. He's got management ability. And he realizes if he becomes a foreman, he can expand his operation and make a lot of money as long as he doesn't have to pay Jacob too much. So he comes to Jacob and says, I'd like to give you a contract. What do you want to work for me? And he says, Rachel. Now, Jacob really screws up here. Because when you're talking to a con artist, you never let him know what your weakness is. And as soon as Laban gets that, as soon as he realizes this guy will do anything for Rachel, he's got him. Why? Because in Laban, Jacob has met his match. Remember, Jacob's a liar, Jacob's a con artist, Jacob is a deceiver, but so is Laban. But Laban's been at it for 25 more years. So as a result, he's better at it, he's more experienced. And he thinks, I got a way I can deal with two problems at once. And I'm going to use this, I'm going to exploit this man's weakness to solve my two problems. Well, what are the two problems? So the first one's easy. How do I make lots and lots of money? How do I get this guy with valuable skills, uh, with very little to pay for it, so then I'll become wealthy. But his second problem is Leah. He's got two daughters. In the verse, of course, you might remember, I tried to read it slowly, probably didn't, but it says, go back, verse uh, 17. Now Laban had two daughters, verse 16. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And then verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. If you look up all the various translations, find every single one of them describes Leah's eyes differently. Some say she has tender eyes. Some say she had delicate eyes. Some versions say she had broken eyes. Because what the word really means is a breakable, fragile thing. Nobody quite knows exactly what the word means. But you, you really, it's not that hard if you look at the context. When the text uses the word weak, does it mean that Leah's vision was weak? If it said her vision was weak, then it would say Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel could see a long, long way. But that's not what it says. It's not talking about how they saw, it's talking about how they looked. And it's not talking about how they look with their eyes, it's talking about what they look like. And what it's really saying here, we have, we have two girls. Almost certainly they're not women yet. Probably younger teens, actually. And Laban has two girls, and one of them either has crossed eyes or protruding eyes or some kind of an eye disorder. But whatever it is, she's ugly. And Rachel is gorgeous. And one's an ugly duckling who would never become a swan, and the other is absolutely gorgeous. And these two girls have to grow up with each other. And Laban has a problem. And this is where the Bible is brutally frank. 
And you might think, you know, thank goodness we're beyond all that, but are we really? I mean, Laban's thinking, I am never going to marry this poor girl off. I'm never going to marry this daughter off, and I have a way to get rich and get rid of this daughter who'd be hanging around my neck. That's the kind of man he was, so what does he do? Well, it gets pretty interesting at this point. Jacob says, I'll work for Rachel for seven years. And Laban says, verse 19, it's kind of tricky. It's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. He doesn't say yes. He said something that would lead Jacob to believe he said yes. But he can always come back later and say, Jacob, read the fine print. It's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. But he doesn't just come out and say yes. So Jacob works for seven years, says, I've done my seven years, send me my wife. Laban says, fine. And of course, at that time, wedding feast is a week long. And Jacob is happier than most. <coughs> Excuse me. Because now he's thinking, finally, I have Rachel. Finally, something is going right in my life. Finally, something will console me for all the problems that I've had. So everybody get, begins to feast, and everybody begins to get drunk, which is really the only logical answer to what happens here. Because right in the middle, the very first night, in comes the wife, in comes the bride, veiled, they embrace, they're married, they go into the tent, they go to bed, and the Hebrew literally says, it's a great narrative, but when morning came, behold, it was Leah. I don't get it either. You know, if you take out the drunk part, it makes no sense. You know, those of you that aren't married yet, pay attention on your wedding day, okay? <laughs> Just good advice. Keep your eyes open. Behold, in the morning, it was Leah. So Jacob goes to Laban and says, why have you done this to me? Laban said, it's the custom. Can't marry off the younger daughter before the older. I know about these things. It's illegal. It's the custom. It's how we do things. The older has to be married before the younger. Jacob was like, what do I do? He says, I'll tell you what. You can marry Rachel too, but you'll have to work another seven years. Jacob says, okay. And so because of all this greed and deception and manipulation and all these deceiving men, Leah is thrown into hell. And to really understand this passage, you have to understand Leah's pain. Leah's pain. Look at some of these just selected verses. Leah's eyes are weak. Rachel is beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel. 25, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob, what have you done to me? Verse 30, so Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. But then we get to verse 31 in the end of the chapter. And there it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. 
Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Leah is the forgotten woman in the story. She is mistreated and manipulated and almost treated like a non-person. Leah is thrown into hell. Leah she could have hardened her heart had she stayed single a long time. She could have dealt with that fact that she was unwanted, dealt with the fact that uh, in a, a world like this, she was unmarketable. And you could say, I'm glad today we're beyond all that. But are we really beyond all that? Is our society that different? And she might have been able to harden her heart, but because of these men, she's put in a situation, she's married to a man who not only doesn't love her, truth be told, lots of people live with that, but the person he does love is the other wife standing right there. And it's her sister. And Leah is just put into hell. And originally I didn't plan to include the last five verses in this uh, uh, sermon because they really play in the next week as well. And there's, so there's some overlap. But these are some of the most plaintive, uh, sad verses in all of the Bible. Because every time she names the child, she says, now, now maybe my husband will love me. Now maybe I'll have some meaning in life. And she names Reuben because Reuben means I'm seen. And Simeon means I'm heard. And Levi means I'm attached. And every time a child comes along, she says, now maybe finally I'll be visible. Now maybe finally I'll be heard. Now maybe finally he'll cleave to me. Surely now my husband will love me. Surely now. And it never happens. But in the last verse, which is the key verse of the whole chapter, we read, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. And that's significant, because these verses let us know that there's good news and bad news, and here's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Draw out the lessons the way the gospel does. There's six lessons, three bad news, three good news. That's how the gospel goes. Lots of bad news at the beginning, but then the good news is so much gooder than the bad news was bad. So we're going to take the first three, and we're going to do the bad news first. Lots of bad news here. First bad news, sin does you. Sin does you. Number one, you never do sin. Sin does you. You never commit sin. Sin commits you. Look carefully. People think that when you commit some sin, if you break God's law, when you lie, you use somebody, you trample on somebody, when you sin, that's just an event. It's just an action. No, it's not. The Bible says when you sin, you don't just do an event and move on. You create and release this devastating power that sort of careens around your life, knocking everything over. And look at what's going on, where we've been so far in Genesis. There are so many examples of this. There isn't time to trace them all out. Look what Isaac does to Jacob. Look how he favors Esau. Look what he does to Jacob, and now what's going on? It's just reverb. 
And Jacob is doing the very same thing to Leah that his father did to him. And then he's going to do it back to Isaac, what Isaac did to him. And eventually, if you keep on going down, the fact that Jacob does this to Leah means that Leah's children will hate Rachel's children when they finally show up. And because Leah's children hate Rachel's children, because of the way that Jacob uh, sinned and deceived, eventually they'll sell Joseph into slavery and deceive Jacob and say he's dead. And so Jacob will go through hell. Hell begets hell, lie begets lie, sin begets sin. You never simply sin. You don't do it, it does you. You never sin and just move on. It's like a, not like a, a stone that you drop, it's like a boulder into, into water. And the shock waves just keep going out forever. And you never get away with sin. You never get away with it. Anything that's a violation of God's will for how people should live and how people should live together, you never get away with it. You don't do sin, sin does you. That's the first bit of bad news. Bad news number two, in the morning, it's always Leah. All life here is marked by some sort of cosmic disappointment. And I want to say something quickly. Having read this and thought about this passage, I want you to know that I love Leah. I'm trying to be protector, protective of her. But for a minute, I have to tell you, she represents something bad. Because one of the most fascinating things in the narrative is the way it turns on you. Because here is Jacob saying, finally, I'm going to have happiness. Finally, I've got Rachel. But in the morning, behold, it was Leah. It's a very interesting little commentary written by uh, Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar. And he says, but in the morning, behold, it was Leah. This is a miniature of our disillusionment experienced from the Garden of Eden on. You know what he's saying? He's saying this is a fact that everybody in this room needs to hear, and it's this. No matter what your hopes for a project, no matter what your hopes for marriage, no matter what your hopes for love, your hopes for a career, whatever it is that you have hopes for, in the morning it will always be Leah. No matter what you think is Rachel, it will always be Leah. I don't think anybody put it better than C.S. Lewis his book, Mere Christianity, has a chapter on hope. And he says, most people, if they really learn to look into their own heart, and that's what we're asking you to do, most people, if they really learn to look into their own heart, would know what they do want, and they would want something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things that this world will offer to give to you, but it never keeps their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of visiting some foreign country, or first take up some subject that uh, excites us, or longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can ever really satisfy. And I'm not speaking of what you would call unsuccessful marriages or holiday failures. I'm speaking of the very best possible ones. There's always something we have grasped that. There's always something in that first moment of longing that fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse, and the scenery may have been excellent, and it turned out to be a good job, but in the end, it evaded us. In the morning, it's always Leah. Now, the reason you have to understand this, because it's painful to overhear people's lives. Notice what I said. I didn't say overhear their words. Overhear people's lives, because people don't say this stuff out loud. 
but you hear it in your life. I hear it. You hear it. I overhear it when I see people's choices. I overhear it when I see people's attitudes, when I see what they're doing. You overhear people who saying with their lives, especially in this county where we live, I'm going to have such a great career. I'm going to get myself a hunk. I'm going to get myself a babe. And I'm going to live in this place. And I'm going to live in this place. And I'm going to live in this place. And I'm going to have this amazing life. And in the morning, it's always Leah. It's a miniature of our disillusionment from the Garden of Eden on. And eventually it will come through. Eventually you'll see it. And there's only four possible ways of responding to that. There's only four ways to go. And you're going to have to choose one of them. And it will totally shape the rest of your life. One, you'll either blame the things you have and say, I got to get better ones. Better woman, better man, better job, better place. Or second, you'll blame yourself and you'll just hate yourself. Or third, you'll blame life. And you'll harden yourself so you'll never hope for anything at all. Or fourth, you can blame the theory of reality and say, you know, there is nothing in this world that ever is Rachel. And if that's the case, then Rachel must be beyond this world. If there's nothing in this world that will ever truly, fully, completely, totally satisfy me, then I'm made for something beyond this world. There's only four possible responses. If you choose number one, one makes you a fool. You either blame the things you have and say, I got to get better ones. Better man, better woman, better job, better place. And that'll make you a fool. And some of you are there this morning. Or two, this one makes you a self-hater. You'll blame yourself and you'll hate yourself and you'll say, I can't do anything right. And you'll become this constant self-hater. Some of you are there this morning. <coughs> Three makes you a hardened cynic. You'll blame life, you'll harden yourself, you never hope for anything, and you become a cynic hardened against others. And some of you are there this morning. And four will make you a Christian. You can blame theory, reality, and say there's nothing in this life that is ever Rachel. Then Rachel must be beyond this world. There's nothing in this life that will ever truly, totally, completely satisfy me. That means I'm made for something beyond this world. And then the only answer is Jesus. So the first bit of bad news is sin. You never do sin. Sin does you. Secondly, all life has some sort of cosmic disappointment. In the morning, it's always Leah. And third, as bad as life is, you make it much worse through idolatry especially the idolatry of family. Bad news, we make our lives worse by idolizing family. Now, I know this may sound very strange, but what we have here is a form of idolatry where you put your hope in something to give you a sense of being loved, of being valuable, give your life meaning. And these aren't the idols of the liberal world. These are the idols of the conservative world. Because Jacob says, if I get this gorgeous wife on my arms, if I'm married, I'm going to have happiness. And it didn't work. And Leah says, if I have a child, if I have another child, if I have another child, if I have all sons, if I have this great family, it's going to be worth something, then I'll be loved. And it doesn't work. And when you build your life on a white picket fence, when you build your life on being married and having a perfect family and all your children growing up to be perfectly happy, 
The Bible comes against that. Seriously? I mean, doesn't the Bible come against immorality and adultery and orgies and living together and all that? Well, yeah, other places in the Bible. But that's not the text that we have here. Here we have a text coming against conservative idols. Here we have a text coming against traditional values. Here we have a text that's saying, if you build your life on a spouse, then at the very best you'll be emotionally dependent or controlling or judgmental. And if anything goes wrong with that spouse, if that spouse has any problems, you'll go to pieces and you won't be any help to that spouse or anybody else. If you build your life on your children, at the very least you'll try to live out your life through your children until they either hate you or don't have any identity of their own. And at worst, you'll end up abusing them because they have to be good, they have to be right, they have to love you, or you don't have a life. And again and again and again, you see Leah saying, Ah, a son, now. She's a great traditional values person, especially at that time, because you're nobody unless you have children. You're a woman, you must have children. And she does, and it doesn't work. She had a nicer husband. She could have lived in that delusion for a long time. But fortunately for her, she doesn't. She comes to see the idols always make the disappointment of this world worse. So that's the bad news. So what's the good news? I told you the good news is much gooder than the bad news was bad. So what's the good news? Well, first, the good news is that God works with weak people. God works with weak people. God works with very weak people. You know, and I'm sure somebody's thinking, this is what I hate in the Bible. You bring out something like this. We got Jacob, he's oppressing these women. Look how he's acting, polygamy, bigamy. Women are being moved around, abused and sold. This is what I hate. And we could spend a lot of time on that. In every place the Bible condemns bigamy and polygamy, every part of God's law. And the text is showing us the misery and hell that comes when women are treated like this. If you think this text condones that behavior, you're getting it all wrong. It's actually a rant against it. But that's not your real problem. The reason why people read these kind of stories and get so bummed out and confused is this. They have a spiritual paradigm that needs to be shattered. And I'm going to try to shatter it right now. You're welcome. When you read the Bible and you see all this stupidity and backstabbing and foolishness on the part of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and everyone else, and you think, what's going on? And you get upset about it because you think the Bible should be a book of virtues. The Bible should be a series of inspirational stories with role models. You think the Bible should be a series of stories about heroes. And that proves you really don't understand the gospel. Because the Bible isn't about role models. It's not about emulating those great people. The Bible gives you again and again and again and again and again and again men and women whom God continues to work with even though they resist his grace, they don't deserve his grace, they don't seek his grace, and they don't even appreciate it after they've been saved by his grace. And it's story after story after story. And why does God give us stories like that? I mean, you have to ask yourself at every story, why is God continuing to work with this guy? If you think the Bible should be a book of virtues or inspirational stories of role models that we should be emulating, that means you think the Bible should be like all the other scriptures and all the other religions. Because in every other religion, God's at the top of the ladder. 
And he's put a ladder down between you and heaven, heaven and earth. And he's standing at the top and he's saying, perform, do good, live bright, emulate the heroes. If you try real hard, you can get up this ladder to heaven. Forget sola fide, forget sola gratia. It's all sola bootstrapsa. That's what it's really all about. But as Jesus said, and as Jeff taught us last week, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Because Jesus says you can never climb up that ladder. You'll never emulate them. I mean, look at those guys. Look at what they have. They get revelation from God. They have miracles in their lives. They have all kinds of incredible things happen to them, and they still screw up time and time and time again. But our Bible, our God, the Christian God, is not a God who stands at the top of the ladder, but one who sent his son down to be the ladder. The one who sent his son down to be the ladder. He's not a God who says perform. He's a God who says, my son Jesus will come down and live the life that you should have lived and die the death that you should have died. And that's why the Bibles are not a series of stories of role models, but of stories of weak people like you and me, whom a strong God has come down and become weak and dies on the cross to save. God works with Weak people, that's the first good news. Second, God works through weak people. God works through weak people. I mean, if you look at our story, Laban really hurt Leah, didn't he? I mean, Laban really hurt Jacob. And yet, if you understand how God used Laban in their lives, you'll see it's only because of Laban and all his tricks and all his meanness and all his deception that Jacob finally begins to get humbled. And a lot of people read this and say, good night. Why didn't Jacob put up more of a fight, more of a fuss, when he realized what Laban was doing? He could have insisted. He could have said no way to seven more years for Rachel, but he didn't. And I think because he realized that what was happening to him is exactly what he'd been doing to everybody else. He saw himself in Laban and he hated it. And he finally begins to come around. He finally gets some perspective. He finally sees who he really is and what he really looks like and what he's really done. And God works in your life through weak people. Right now, there is a Laban in your life. Instead of just screaming, Lord, why have you put this Laban in my life? You have to realize that God works not just with weak people, but he works in your life through weak people. And finally, the best news is God works in the weakest. God works in the weakest. God is attracted to the weakest. He doesn't just work with and through, but he works in the weakest and the most broken. And that's what's so astounding about Leah. The one thing you can't realize as you watch her cry her eyes out, her broken eyes, talk about how much she wants her husband to love her. She uses a vocabulary that's very striking. There are two primary words used for God in Hebrew Old Testament. The first one is the Hebrew word translated Elohim, generic name for God. Just means God. Everybody uses the word, all religions, all people. Everybody uses the word God. Literally means the great one. But when God came down to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, he gave them a new name to use. He gave them his personal name, and it's the name Yahweh. We sang about it at the beginning of our service. And this word Yahweh is a name he only gave to people to whom he was also giving the story of salvation. And he only says Yahweh to people 
to whom he says, I want you to believe my promise that through a descendant I will save you. And every place the word Yahweh shows up in the English Old Testament, most translations, not all, you don't see the word God, you see the Lord. All caps, sometimes small caps. And that's to tell you they're using the word Yahweh. And here's Leah floundering around like a madwoman, doing anything she can to deal with the hell that she's in, feeling like, how do I get out of this? I always knew I was homely. I always knew I was ugly. I always knew in the world's eyes I was nothing. And every day it's pushed into my face. How am I going to survive? She says, a child. And every time she has a child, she cries out and faces her husband. Now my husband will save me. Now my husband will love me. And she looks at her child, but every time she also says to the Lord, and she begins to call on the name of Yahweh. Now, wait a minute. What happened? How did Leah hear about this? God doesn't give his name till Exodus 3 to Moses, and we ain't gotten there yet. But here it is. It showed up. It's just like we see the law prior to the Ten Commandments. It's already there. And Leah must have heard this promise of a seed, this promise of salvation, and she begins not to believe in a God who's standing at the top of the ladder to whom she has to submit, which is what everybody else believes. But she begins to grab hold of this idea of a Lord, Yahweh, a God who will save by grace. And what's so fascinating, look carefully and you'll see it if you go back. She turns to her husband again and again and again, right up to the very end. And at the very end, something radically changes. Every time she says, my husband will love me. Now my husband will love me. Now my husband will love me. Finally, she conceives again. She gives birth to a son and she says, this time I will praise the Lord. No talk about her husband. Through this suffering, she stopped turning to her husband. She stopped looking to her children. She stopped looking at anything else and said, this time I'm going to praise the Lord. And at that moment, she got her life back. At that moment, Laban and Jacob and Rachel, and all the people who used her and abused her as she stayed in that idolatry has fallen away. At that point, she gets her life back. And what's more than that, who's the child? When she finally stopped looking to her husband for those things that only God can give, and she finally turns to God and says, this time I will praise the Lord, and the child is who? It's Judah. Who's Judah? God comes to Leah and says, essentially, you'll be the mother of Jesus. Because the line of promise doesn't go through Rachel. It goes through Leah. Because Judah was the seed. And more than that, Leah becomes the seed. Leah the ugly. Leah the rejected. Leah the outsider. But because she grabs hold of the Lord with faith, she gets her life back. And God comes down and makes her into the seed and puts her in the line of promise. And she goes ahead of her husband and she understands the gospel better than her husband. And at the very end, God says through your suffering, because you've come to understand the gospel, you're the seed, your son Judah is the seed. You become one of the mothers in the line of Jesus. How can that be? Why would God do that? The answer is right here in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. He came to her. And now we know. The Old Testament shows us what the New Testament tells us. God loves those who others don't love. God is attracted to the weak because of his grace, and he wants the ones that nobody else wants. 
But more than that, when he sees a wife who's not loved, he shows her there's a heavenly bridegroom. He shows her there's a heavenly husband. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the bridegroom. He's not just the king and we're servants. And he's not just the shepherd and we're sheep. He's the bridegroom and we're the bride. And what happens is uh, Jesus comes to earth and died and gave up his true beauty, the beauty of holiness, and lost his true beauty to live the life that we should have lived and die the death we should have died so that when we believe in him, we become his bride. And I'll tell you what that means. Though you may think you look like Leah, to Jesus, you look like Rachel. That's the gospel. When we look at ourselves, we see Leah. But when Jesus looks at us, he sees that we're gorgeous. That's what God's doing here. We see a foretaste of the fact that God is the heavenly bridegroom. And he sees the wife who's unwanted. And that's why God chooses the foolish to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong and the things that are despised and the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that we might understand God's grace, so that we might get the gospel. A lot of you this morning got up, and you may not have used this words, but you thought you looked like Leah. But if you have your faith in Jesus, when he looks at you, he sees Rachel. Think about that. Because God's the one that makes you matter. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Oh Lord, our Lord, you showed much grace to Jacob, but you showed more grace to Leah. And we want you to show the same grace to us. We want to belong just as much as Leah did. And we want to be loved just as much as Leah did. And sometimes for all the bad reasons, we blame others and we blame our circumstances and we blame ourselves. and you still come to us and you still show grace to us who are undeserving. Lord, thank you that we're made for something beyond this world. Thank you that when we feel like Leah to you, we look like Rachel. Thank you in the name of our beloved bridegroom, Jesus who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.